You are listening to Hope Fellowship Church in Jaffrey, New Hampshire. Our mission is to bring the hope of Jesus to Jaffrey and beyond. We are here to know Christ, grow in Christ, and serve others. If you would like to learn more about our ministry, please visit hopejaffrey.org. All right, if you turn with me to 1 Samuel chapter 26. good to be back with you. I was preaching at Monadnock Congregational Church last week. It was an honor to speak with them and help encourage that church. It's Caleb Baker is going to be the new pastor over there, and I'm really excited about him and his family and that church and where they're headed. We're just liking to encourage the local congregations in our area. It's a, it's a blessing to be in this area and have so many good churches here. Thankful for that, but I'm happy to be back with you today. And we're going to be looking at 1 Samuel 26. This is really part one of part two of our final messages in 1 Samuel. Uh, We're going to be looking to continue as time allows into 2 Samuel in the coming months. But as we kind of bring this message, these last couple of chapters to a close in 1 Samuel, we'll be looking at uh, part one, which is really the sense of David's last resort. And, And next week, we're going to be looking at Saul's last meal. And so today we're focusing on David. Next week we'll be looking at Saul, but they're both pitted against each other in these chapters, 26 through 31. You'll be very thankful I'm not reading all of chapters 26 and 31. (laughs) We're just highlighting a few points from this and looking at David's life. Again, David's life in 1 Samuel is incredible, and it's one of these lives that is hard to encapsulate or grasp, but it's the the greatest amount of material that we have from someone's life from start to finish. There's nobody else in the Bible that covers more in depth and with more detail about one person's life. We know him from a young boy and we find out what he's like as as an old man one day in 2 Samuel at the end. And so it's incredible to see. So what I'm gonna do is... um, I'm going to be preaching through a few of these ideas, but I wanted to do, because I recognize many of you have been jumping back in. I've actually met some people today and before about who are coming to this church for the first time. And so what I wanted to do is, since we've walked through almost all of 1 Samuel, uh, I wanted to give a summary of 1 Samuel, a recap in under three minutes. And some of you are like already laughing, like that's... I know you, Jordan, and that's impossible, okay? I understand. So I actually timed myself earlier, and it was like three minutes and 20 seconds, so I'm going to try to keep it under three minutes, okay? So some of you, I see you getting out your timers right now and all that, okay? Uh, We're going to go really fast. This is the entire book of 1 Samuel under three minutes, okay? And I'm going to force myself not to preach on little things I say, just to say it and move on. It's very difficult for us preachers, okay? We have trouble with that. You, You all know that. All right, so the beginning. All right, I've got to pray here. Okay, here we go. First uh, Samuel, under three minutes. Hannah prays, right? Chapter one. Samuel is born. God humbles the proud and exalts the humble. Eli fails and falls on his own weight. He cannot carry the kabod, the weight of God. Samuel becomes priest and judge. The false god of Dagon is humiliated by the Ark of the Covenant. Samuel grows old. Israel wants a king to be like all the other nations. So Saul becomes the people's choice. Tall and handsome, but inwardly a coward and selfish. He wants to control things on his time and in his hands. Saul disobeys. He takes matters into his own hands and in his own way, ignores God's way. So Saul falls down and rips Samuel's robe. And then God rips and tears the kingdom from Saul. So David is chosen. 
David is outwardly small and short and young, but inwardly strong and a man of, of, uh, after God's own heart. For man looks on the outward, God looks on the heart. David kills Goliath as a demonstration of that and demonstrates that giants cannot defeat God's inward power. David, as God's anointed one, is supported and beloved by Jonathan, King Saul's son. Saul grows jealous and hardens his heart against God. Saul hunts David like a wild animal, attempts to kill him many times. David escapes time and time again. Saul's paranoia and jealousy and envy increases, and he actually slaughters the priests of God at Nob. David receives the only priest left and the ephod, the way to communicate with God. So God continues to speak and guide David and is silent towards Saul as his envy and jealousy and insanity grows. David inquires of the Lord. God answers David at Keilah and saves and rescues him and makes a way of escape. God continues to ignore Saul. Eventually, Samuel, the priest, dies. David and his men hide in the wilderness. David passes three tests or temptations. He cuts off Saul's robe instead of cutting off his head. He's restrained from shedding blood wantonly because Abigail convinces him not to kill Nabal, the fool. He again spares Saul while he's sleeping. David, in desperation, runs to the enemy in Gath for safety. God, however, blesses his anointed one and preserves and protects him wherever he goes. And when David comes to the end of himself, when his family has been kidnapped, David consults with God and God answers him and gives him the victory. Saul, on the other hand, consults a medium, a conjurer, to conjure up the word from the dead in the darkness of night. Saul receives a ghostly word of doom. David receives a word from Yahweh of victory and reward. The next day, David is reunited with his family in victory over Amalekites, while Saul and his family is killed in battle by his own hand. <gasps> okay, is that three minutes? Did you? you... 309. Okay, so I failed, but that was pretty good. I beat my other time, 320. Okay? I was tempted to start pausing and say things, and I just read it and moved on. Okay, 309. Some of you are saying, why didn't we just do that at the beginning? And then we could be in 2 Samuel by now. Okay? All right. Okay, relax, right? We got, we got a whole lifetime to go through the word, right? Uh, so, yeah, that's, that's 309, three minutes and nine seconds. That's 1 Samuel in a nutshell. So, today we're going to be kind of kind of tying up some of those loose ends at the very last end of that. And I hope to bring home some encouraging words, but also some challenges from David's life today for you. So chapter 26, 27, 29, and 30, we'll be highlighting. Chapter 26, verse 5. Chapter 26, verse 5, 1 Samuel says, Immediately, David saw, David went to the place where Saul had camped. He saw the place where Saul and Abner, son of Ner, and the commander of his army were lying down. Saul was lying down in the inner circle of the camp with the troops camped around him. Then look at verse eight. Then Abishai said to David, today God has delivered your enemy to you. Let me thrust a spear through him into the ground just once. I won't have to strike him twice. I'll kill Saul. He's right there sleeping. He doesn't know we're here. Kill him right now and get this over with. This is deja vu. He's seen this before. Verse 9, but David said to Abishai, don't destroy him, for who can lift a hand against the Lord's anointed and be innocent? That's key. Then verse 10, says David added, as the Lord lives, the Lord will certainly strike him down, and he will. That's a prophecy in many ways. Either his day will come, or he will die, or he will go into battle and perish. That happens in chapter 31. 
However, as the Lord is my witness, I will never lift a hand against the Lord's anointed. Instead, take the spear and the water jug by his head and let's go. Let's get out of here. So David took the spear and the water jug by Saul's head and they went their way. No one saw them. No one knew that they were in the king's camp. No one woke up. They all remained asleep because a deep sleep from the Lord had come over them. And then I'll keep reading. David crossed on the other side and stood on the top of the mountain at distance. There was a considerable space between them and David shouted to the troops, to Abner, son of Ner, aren't you going to answer Abner? Who are you who calls the king, Abner asked. Verse 14 in the passage goes on, or we'll, we'll close there for now. But the idea is this, this third temptation and test where David has a chance again to get rid of Saul, the very guy who's been chasing him and hunting him down to have chapter after chapter after chapter, and yet chooses again the path of righteousness, the path of the sovereignty of God, that, that Saul's life and David's life are in, the, are in God's hands. It is not David's right to take Saul's life. And so he creeps into the camp. He takes a spear, which is stuck right next to Saul's head and the water jug right behind, next to his head. And he climbs up onto the mountain and he holds him up and says, hey, everybody, wake up. Again, I had another chance to kill you. And then ultimately he asks, what is it that I have done? In verse 28, he says, why, why are you pursuing me? What wrong have I done? What? I am innocent, he says. And so this is the third test. Before in the cave, he cuts off the robe, the corner of the robe and says, I could have killed you there. And then he could have killed Nabal in, in, in out of wrath, but Abigail stops him. And then this third test here, when he, when he finds him sleeping in the camp and David sneaks into the camp and chooses again that he is not the one who is going to take out the Lord's anointed, you could say. Saul, the king, would not be up to David. He would leave it up to God. Just like God took care of Nabal in his timing and in his way, God will take care of Saul in his timing and his way. It's a great amount of faith to do this, not to take matters into his own hands just like Saul did, for David would have become just like Saul in many ways if he had succumbed to these tests and these temptations. And so in many ways, chapter 26 leads us to this point of a mountaintop experience. Really, David is... I want to use the phrase, he's killing it, except he's not killing people right now, okay? That just, I don't know, that didn't really work. I shouldn't... That worked okay. Well, you know, he's, he's doing great. He's doing awesome. David has passed test after test, really tough things. And in some ways, you would say, well, life's going to be easy now. He's figured it out. Like, David has the answer. He's figured life out. It's going to be easy. But we know it's not always the way the story goes. And that's certainly not always the way your life goes. Or if I'm speaking from experience. So deja vu is chapter 26 because he's already seen this test several different times. But then we get deja vu take two, which is chapter 27. And if that makes any sense, I'm not really sure. But deja vu take two because chapter 27 seems to, as we'll look into it, have happened before as well. It seems like David has been in a tough time and escaped to the enemy before. This has happened before. So look at chapter 27, verse 1 through 4. David, this is right after his mountaintop experience. This is what happens in chapter 27, 1. David said to himself, and we'll wait till I'll just keep reading. One of these days, I'll be swept away by Saul. Sounds very depressed all of a sudden. There's nothing better for me to do than to escape immediately to the land of the Philistines. And then Saul will give up searching for me everywhere in Israel, and I'll, I'll escape from him. So immediately there's a change in tone. 
He's just escaped from Saul's camp. He just walked by Saul sleeping, chose not to kill him. He's had victory of faith. He's on this experience of the mountain. And now he says to himself, I, I can't do it anymore. I'm going to die. One of these days, Saul's going to sweep me up and I'm going to die. So where do I go? Well, I don't know. I'll just, I'll just go to the enemy's camp. <laughs> I'll go to the Philistines. I'll flee there. Then I'll be safe. It's very illogical, but that's what he chooses to do. And so he keeps on. And so David set out with his 600 men, verse 2, and went out over Achish, son of Makok, and the king of Gath. David and his men stayed with Achish and Gath. Each man had his own family with him. David had his two wives with him, Ahinoam, Jezreel, and, and Abigail of Carmel, Nabal's widow. And verse 4, and when it was reported to Saul that David had fled to Gath, he no longer searched for him. So in one way, it was successful. In another way, it doesn't seem to make much sense. He goes to Gath, seems kind of to be a strange thing. And the reason this is deja vu take two is because he's done this before. If you looked back in chapter 21, I believe it is, verses 10 through 15, David went through a similar turn of events. He was in a place of desperation. He was in a place of difficulty, and he didn't have any food or weapons. He went to the tabernacle, and he received bread from the holy from the holies, uh, the bread of presence. He's sustained by God. He receives the sword of Goliath. Do you remember this? Chapter 21. And then he takes the sword of Goliath of Gath as a weapon and he runs to Gath, the city of, of the enemy city, and there he's captured. And this is that crazy story. Do you remember this one? When David fakes insanity, he starts foaming at the mouth and convulsing. And King Achish is like, who is this madman in my midst? I've got enough crazy people in my country. Get this guy out. And so David, God makes a way of escape for David. So David, in that insane kind of crazy moment, he does it again. He goes to Gath when he's in a hard time. Now God continues to follow him. Continues to protect him and preserve him. And I, I love this because God is not trigger happy. It does seem that David is making a foolish mistake here, going into the enemy's hands. And really, in many ways, in the next chapter or two, he aligns himself with the enemy. And you're like, this is not what the king is supposed to be doing. Yet we find that God is long suffering and patient. I'm so thankful for that in my life. That when I maybe don't maybe take the right path, you could say, or I make a foolish decision, it is not as if God is waiting to destroy you and just can't wait for you to slip up, then he gets to push you over and trip you on your face. That's not how God is, and so often we think of him like that. If I make one little mistake, it's over. No, rather, I think what God looks on is the heart, and that's the difference between Saul and David so often. David's heart was pure and his heart was clean. His heart was desiring, even though here we find him in a place of depression and desperation and confusion. Because look at chapter 27, verse one. David said to himself. Do you see that in chapter 27, verse one? The very first phrase in the Christian Standard Bible, it says, David said to himself. Look, even in this chapter, there's really no mention of God. There's no mention of him searching for God, praying to God, asking God. He doesn't consult the priests. He doesn't look to anyone. He says to himself, never a good place to be. When you're alone, life is hard, you're in a difficult place, and you speak to yourself, yourself will answer, right? And I can say very often that that voice that I hear from within me isn't always the voice I need to hear. I need to consult others, seek the wisdom of others who are around me, and consult God as he should be doing, but instead he asks himself, and then that depressing voice from within us answers and says, you're doomed, you're done for, you're going to die, Saul's going to get you. You know it. I think David really just came to the end of his rope in many ways. He was tired. 
He'd been running for a long time. He's gone through some really hard things. He's been there, kind of in a place maybe you find yourself today. It's been hard. It's been difficult. I don't know what to do. I don't know where to go. And it just feels like everything's falling apart. And he so quickly, he so quickly forgets what God has done for him. And why, why now, you could say in some ways, why, why now does he think that God will not preserve him? Why freak out now that God is not going to protect him? What, what does he have to go off of? Saul, God has literally protected David every step of the way up until now. Why do we think he's going to fail now? He lacks faith, really, in many ways. I think of God's promises. It's so easy for us to do this. David and the lion and the bear, God preserved him. David and Goliath, the most famous, God preserved him and protected him and empowered him. Saul tries to spear David to a wall multiple times. David has escaped. David uh, is running from Saul. Saul comes to kill him in the, at night in his home, but David's wife, Michael, lets him escape through the window, and she puts a dummy in the bed to make it look like he's sleeping. David is rescued. Jonathan protects David, helps him escape by giving him information. He gets bread of presence, the sword of Goliath, escapes to Gath, and then God makes a way of escape there. God makes a way of escape in the city of Keilah. When they're trapped in the city and they don't have any place to go, God makes a way. And Saul was chasing him and he was on the other side of the mountain and he was pressing in and David didn't have anywhere to go. There's the rock of separation that God calls in that passage and a messenger comes to Saul and whispers in his ear and says, you're needed back home and Saul leaves the chase and David escapes. David spares Saul in the cave. Abigail restrains David from killing Nabal. David spares Saul again in the night, steals his sword and water jug and walks away scot-free and now in chapter 27, he's like, I, I can't do it anymore. Have you ever been there? You read the word, you've looked at your life, you look at your past, you see all the things that God has preserved in your life, all the things that he has done for you, the promises that he has kept, the preservation that he has in your life that he's gotten to you to this right now. Why is it that we doubt him, right? Why is it that our faith falters and fails? Lord, strengthen our faith, we could say. Lord, I believe, but help my unbelief, as we say many times, as your word says. Strengthen my faith. And so, in so many ways, we, we look at God as one who is faltering or is fleeing or one who is not there or answering us and yet reaching out. God is right there. And Chuck Swindoll puts it this way. David is coming off of this spiritual and emotional high. He comes down on the valley and he hits the panic button. He is, he's, he's on the mountain and he drops down into the pits. He looks at life from a humanistic viewpoint and a pessimistic one. I so tend to do that all the time. Everything is a humanistic problem, a human issue. I look at life in a closed system that humanly speaking, this is impossible. That's what we see. And then pessimistically speaking or cynically speaking, it's not gonna work out. It's all gonna fail. He points out that Saul's gonna get him versus saying, look, Saul is chasing me, but God is stronger and God has proven himself to be stronger in every step of the way. Why am I afraid? But if David could even be in that place, it reminds me that I can be in that place too. And yet God is the same. It reminds me if David can be in a place like that, so can I. It reminds me of even if the great Elijah can be in a situation like that, then so can I. You know the story of Elijah, maybe some of the kids in Sunday school, you, you talk through this story very often. Elijah on Mount Carmel, when the prophets of Baal are, are, are kind of in this duo back and forth, right? who can uh, call down fire from heaven first wins, right? <laughs> who can consume the, the altar first wins. 
The prophets of Baal are trying for days and days, cutting themselves, doing all these kinds of things, and, and their God never answers them. Elijah prays in two seconds, basically says, Lord, I believe in you, and I, I ask that you would make your name known, and he sends down fire from heaven and consumes the fire, and, and there's this great victory, literally a mountaintop experience, because Elijah's on top of Mount Carmel. But what happens? The next chapter, he comes down from Mount Carmel. He, he comes down from Mount Carmel, and well, he, he gets word that Jezebel, the queen, wants to kill him. And then he allows his mind to get into that humanistic point, that, that experience after a mountaintop experience. He's in the valley, and he, the word says in 1 Kings 19.3, Elijah became afraid, and he immediately ran for his life. Why is it that we so quickly forget the fire that fell down from heaven and two minutes later we're afraid for our lives? 19.4, it says he eventually sat under a broom tree and prayed that he might die. He said, I- I've-, I've had enough. In 1 Kings 19.4, Lord, take my life for I'm no better than my ancestors. He's in a place of suicidal thoughts and tendencies and, and experiencing this grave depression in his life. And so often, I know I've felt these things in life where you see God work and maybe in some ways you're jealous that it worked for them but not for you. And so many ways you, you experience these feelings where you see things humanistically speaking, pessimistically speaking, and we don't see the spirit of God that is at work above it all. We don't see the power of God that can change and transform lives. And then God speaks to him in a, not in a wind, not in an earthquake, not in a fire, For after the fire, there was a still small voice, a voice, a small whisper. And God, you know what God says to Elijah? Elijah, what are you doing here? (laughs) That's literally what he says. What are you doing here? I feel like that many times. So David, what are you doing here? Well, David, back in 1 Samuel 27, he, he serves kind of as a double agent. He starts acting in duplicity like a spy behind enemy lines. He's living in the foreign city of Ziklag which is a gift given to him by King Achish, the enemy king, the Philistines. And he's living in this foreign city, kind of using it as his base of headquarters. He starts raiding the surrounding towns, the enemies of, um, of Israel without the Philistines knowing it. He starts acting like a king in a foreign land. It's pretty incredible, actually. And then Achish, the foreign king here, the bad king, the enemy, starts trusting David. He calls him his permanent bodyguard and trusts him. But then he becomes in a difficult situation. Chapter 29 and 28, we see this situation coming about. Where all of a sudden, he has a choice to make. Because the Philistines are starting to gather against Israel to fight them against King Saul. So is David going to fight alongside the Philistines, the people he's been harbored by? Or is he going to leave and fight with the Israelites? What is David going to do? He's kind of playing this spy behind enemy lines. And, and eventually the mask comes off and the Philistines says, wait, we know who you are. You're that David guy who killed Goliath. They sang about Saul killed his thousands, but you killed his ten thousands. And some of those ten thousands are our own Philistine people. Get out of here. So they kick him out. So he goes back to Ziklag in many ways to maybe with his tail between his legs in some ways. And so he, he goes back, and, and as he is, he comes over the, the crest of the, of the ridge, and he's going to Ziklag, where his family has been living, where he's been living for months now, and he smells something in the air. He smells something burning. The town of Ziklag is on fire. He goes home to his house, it's on fire, and his family is not there. 
His children are gone. His wives are gone. He talks to his men. His men are searching their stuff. Their lives are ruined. Everything is ransacked and pillaged. Everything is stolen. The city is burning. And their women and children, their wives and their families have been kidnapped. So I think in many ways, God uses this situation to bring David back. To bring David back from behind enemy lines and back to God. And in chapter 30, we experience the situation where David finds out the Amalekites have kidnapped his family. Look at chapter 30, verse one through six. David and his men arrived in Ziklag on the third day, and the Amalekites had raided the Negev and attacked and burned Ziklag. They also kidnapped the women and everyone in it, from youngest to oldest. They had killed no one, but they carried them all off, and they went on their way. David and his men arrived in town. They found it burned Their wives, sons, daughters had been kidnapped. David and the troops with him wept loudly, and here's the key phrase, until they had no strength left to weep. David is literally coming to the very end of himself. Verse five says David's two wives, Ahinoam and Abigail, have been kidnapped. Verse six says David, I love this, David was in an extremely difficult position. Yeah, no kidding, right? (laughs) I love the simplicity of the Bible at times. David was in a tough spot. Yeah, that's, that's uh, one of the last time your house was burning and your entire family was kidnapped. Uh, the king of Israel doesn't want you, you can't go back there, and the king of the Philistines doesn't want you and you're on the run. What was How's your day going, right? <laughs> you know? He's in a tough spot. He's in a difficult position. And yet when he faces this, when he's in the difficult position, when he is weeping till he has no more tears to weep. You ever been there? You've cried so much you cannot cry anymore. He found himself in a difficult position, also not because that, but because the troops talked about stoning him. This is verse six. For they were all very bitter over the loss of their sons and daughters. What have you done, King David? You put us in this position, now our wives and children are gone. And look at this phrase. What's the difference between Saul and David? You wanna see the the main difference between Saul and David? You wanna see the main difference between your life and someone who is an unbeliever? What should the main difference be? The fact that these things happen to all of us? Yes, there are difficult things that happen to us all, but how is it that we respond in faith? What is it that we do different? What, what is it that one who believes in God, how is it that we respond diff- different to difficulty? Well, verse six, but David, at the very end, David found strength in the Lord his God. I love that verse. It's, it's this building of this story and this narrative of incredibly difficult things, of hardship. David comes to the end of himself. He has nowhere else to go. He cannot rely on himself, anyone else. He, and so what does he do? Well, in fact, we see Saul reacting a completely different way, but David here responds by saying in verse seven, David said to the priest Abathar, the son of Ahimelech, bring me the ephod. So Abathar brought it to him. And verse eight, David asked the Lord, He asked the Lord, it's the first time he's asked the Lord in chapters, will I uh, overtake them? And the Lord replied to him, pursue them, for you will certainly overtake them and rescue the people. The contrast here could not be greater. Because at this same moment, as this is happening, the author is presenting to us another scenario. The scenario was Saul back in chapter 28. We're gonna look at this next week. I'm just giving you a little kind of a sneak peek. But ultimately what's happening in Saul's life is, is he is in a difficult position as well. The Philistines are on his doorstep and he feels like he cannot win. What is Saul to do? Where will Saul turn? Saul, instead of seeking the Lord, for the Lord will not answer him. Saul is the rejected one. 
So what does Saul do? He turns to a medium, a conjurer, a sorcerer, one who works witchcraft and speaks with demons. He seeks after a medium for answers while David is inquiring of the Lord. It's an incredible situation. It's incredible because in many ways, Saul back in 1 Samuel 15 was the one who did not destroy the Amalekites or King Agag like he was supposed to. Saul failed in that way, and that was the final straw of disobedience against God. Now, God will use David here in verse uh, chapter 30 to, to bring his justice upon the Amalekites who kidnapped his family. Saul failed in his original duty. Saul, David now will uphold what God has him to do through this situation. So in verse 28, we, chapter 28, we see that Saul is seeking out a witch a diviner, a medium for answers from God. He goes groping around in darkness and in witchcraft to receive some favor from God. Saul is at his wit's end and the answer he gets from that darkness is doom. David seeks the Lord, God blesses him and answers him. Saul seeks a medium and God answers him with doom. And we see the kingly leadership change in this way where the anointed power of God is with David and the one who seeks him and who is a man after his own heart. God leads him, protects him. David goes and wins victory over the Amalekites. It says in verse 17 and 18, we see that David um, slaughtered them and won the battle. In verse 18, David recovered everything the Amalekites had taken. He rescued his two wives. He brought them back. Verse 19, nothing was missing from the youngest to the oldest, including the sons and daughters and all the plunder the Amalekites had taken. David got everything back. Do you see that verse? Verse 19, David got everything back. Isn't that amazing? I just love it. The sense that David is, is so often pitted as this picture of Christ, Jesus Christ, the one who is to come. That the, 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 the we are the ones who are stolen and kidnapped. This Satan, the, the one of darkness, the workers of iniquity, has stolen us. We are slaves. We have been kidnapped. And who is it the one that comes to redeem us? Who is, it the, who is the one who rescues us? It's Jesus comes running, comes, comes to earth to rescue mankind, to redeem us. Back. And, and it's in one way that one day when the Lord comes, his kingdom is now and not yet complete, that one day Jesus will return and he will get everything back. How cool is that? Jesus will receive everything. All wrongs will be made right. All, all evil will be put aside. Righteousness and his kingdom will rule and reign forever and ever. His righteous reign, no more crying, no more pain. Jesus will get everything back. And I, that phrase just, it is just so beautifully pointing us to Christ. For, for David is just a type of Christ. He is an imperfect anointed Messiah. He will uh, falter and fail for he is human. Yet the one who was human and God, the incarnate son of God, the son of David as he's known in the New Testament, that Jesus Christ is the one who will come and rescue us and save us. And it's, it's in this way that we see the heart that we all need to have today. This is what I wanna close with, just a, one point of application for us all is, is seeing the most important thing about David is not necessarily his victories and his, and his battles and his kingly leadership, although he demonstrates that in a variety of ways. It's found in his heart, and this has been the story all through this first Samuel. It's his heart. David falters, and you know the stories in 2 Samuel about Bathsheba and the situations where David in a few short weeks commits adultery and murder back to back, and yet when he is presented with his sin, 
when he is presented with the error of his ways, when his family has been kidnapped and he's experiencing the righteous judgment of God, the way he responds makes all the difference, does it not? When you are faced with your sin, when you are faced with your inability to save yourself, when, you are, when that is pushed in front of you, maybe it's a preacher or a friend or the word of God, it pushes in front of you so you're at the end of yourself and you have nowhere else to go. You have nowhere else to turn. You're at wit's end. You're at the end of your rope. You're in the pits, whatever it might be. When you are placed with you, the way you respond to that makes all the difference. Psalm 51, 17, the sacrifice pleasing to God is a broken spirit. You will not despise a broken and humbled or contrite heart. God, God will not despise a broken and contrite, humbled heart. Well, I gotta figure it out. I gotta do all the right things. I gotta work my way to heaven. I gotta be cleaned up before I come into the doors of the church before I worship. And no, 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 <laughs> that's not it at all. It's about grace and mercy. It's, it's about simply responding to God in repentance recognizing that you are broken and you are humbled before him and you profess and confess that Jesus is your savior. You turn to him in repentance, confessing and professing in faith and in many ways the word would then direct us to take a step of action, to be baptized. To, to, to take a step of action of public proclamation of your faith. To now walk out what it is you believe. For that's what it says in Acts 2. Acts 2 gives us that description as we close. Acts 2 reminds us of, of this sense of being confronted with our sin and our, and, and our failure and all that we have done, our trespasses and our iniquity and our sin, that we are, have rebelled against a holy God. And when Peter preached, it says, and when they heard this, they were pierced to the heart, Acts 2, 37, and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, brothers, what should we do? When the word of God is preached before you, when you see an error that needs to be fixed, when you know that you do not measure up to his standard, what is it that you do? What should we do? Peter replied, repent. <laughs> Isn't that crazy? Repent, he says, and be baptized, each one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins and you'll receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. And now you'll be filled to walk in him, right? Now you have the power to respond, yes, in this, uh, this uh, repentance, but to now live it out and to live the new life in Christ. It's a repentance. It's a turning from your sin like David did, he recognized what he did wrong and he sought the Lord. And then he confessed and professed his faith in the Lord who is his strength. And as he stepped in the Lord that is his strength, he communed with God, God answered him, and then he took a step and he acted upon what God called him to do. This is the, the way of salvation. This is the way of faith. This is really in many ways the, maybe a step that you need to take for the very first time today. But maybe for the, many of us who have taken that step, we need to be reminded that each and every day we go through that same process of repenting against our desire to control everything and our desire to be the souls of the world, to be the ones in control and power and this is my kingdom, or rather to be like a David who humbles himself and breaks his heart before God and says, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Be like David Seek his heart and pursue the, 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 the final David, the new Adam, Jesus Christ, as he's the one who's rescued us 
and redeems you back to himself for Jesus will get everything back. Let's close in prayer. Father, we thank you for your word, your truth, and all that you've shared with us this morning. Thank you for the testimonies that filled my heart with encouragement of what you're doing in Africa. God, I pray even today, maybe you would impress upon someone's heart today of a desire to go on one of these teams or to become and to go and to step into full-time ministry of some sorts in these ways. And I pray that even the youngest among us would see and sense that they are called to serve you with their lives, whatever that might be, wherever that might take us. Help us to be seeking you in that. Thank you, God, for your word. Thank you for 1 Samuel and the story of David. How it reminds you, how it reminds us of who you are and your Savior, Jesus Christ. Thank you, God, as we're about to sing that you have never failed. You have never failed, and you will never fail. God, you are with us no matter what. In Jesus' name, amen.